Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. This is the second episode in our new series, Get Me Another Star Wars. Last week, we talked about some of the first efforts to ride the wave of Star Wars of success with Universal Television's Battlestar Galactica and the Toei Company's Message from Space. Today, we're going to be talking about three lower-budget efforts to replicate the Star Wars phenomenon, uh, 1978's Star Crash, as well as The Humanoid and The Shape of Things to Come, both from 1979. Uh, We're still fairly early in the post-Star Wars cycle, and I think it's no coincidence that some of the less expensive pictures hit cinemas more quickly than some of the bigger-budget studio productions. Now, Rob, here at Get Me Another Studios, there's a word we, we discourage the use of, and that is knockoff. Because many of the movies that we, are, are, we, we look at are, are really good pictures in their own right, and while they did follow in the wake of others, you know, other movies' successes, they are not knockoffs. That being said, I think some of the movies we are going to talk about today would qualify as knockoffs. And that leads us to our first movie, Star Crash. Our galaxy is split into two warring factions, our own, and the one ruled by the evil Count Zarzan from the League of the Dark World. The Count has created a weapon, a weapon so vast so huge that it would take a whole planet to conceal it. You must sail to the haunted stars. Find the Count's secret planet and destroy it. Star Crash was shot at Cinecetta Studios in Rome. It was directed by Luigi Cosi and produced by Nat and Patrick Wasberger. It was an international effort. It was produced by the French. It was written and directed by an Italian. And it starred British-American actors, including Carolyn Monroe as space smuggler Stella Starr, Marjorie Gortner, future Knight Rider star David Hasselhoff, prolific character actor Joe Spinell, and of course the legendary Christopher Plummer as the Emperor of the Known Universe. Uh, It was originally set to be released by American International Pictures, but they backed out after seeing the final cut. Instead, Roger Corman's New World Pictures stepped in to release the film in the United States on March 7th, 1979, and it was successful enough that it prompted Corman to begin work on his own Star Wars-inspired film, Battle Beyond the Stars, which we will discuss in a later episode. Uh, Rob, how do we... How do we begin to talk about Star Crash? I have no idea. This movie (laughs) broke my brain. Um, I I have no idea what to say about this movie. It is so bonkers and it's, it's impossible to keep track of in your head. I wrote notes, Chris, and I still am not sure what happened in this movie. We are professional podcasters. We take notes when we watch these movies, but at the end, it started to look like a, you know a, a diary that from from seven. It just made no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> um, on the on the surface, if I can 
try and sum up the plot of of Star Crash. It tells the story of space smuggler Stella Star and her co-pilot Acton, who after being captured by the authorities are tasked by the Emperor of the Universe with finding the Emperor's missing son and destroying a super weapon created by the evil Count Zarth On. Along the way, they're menaced by Amazon warriors, cavemen, and the Count's own robotic golems. I mean, that's... But that doesn't tell you the tale, really. Um, honestly, this movie breaks every narrative rule in the book. Yes, I will... Uh... I mean, here's the thing. It is mixing so many elements that have nothing to do with Star Wars and then trying to slap a Star Wars uh, coat of paint on things. So let, let's start with Stella. that is a heavy Stella. coat of paint. You know, let, well, let's start <laughs> yes. with Stella. Uh, played by the lovely <laughs> Carolyn Monroe, who had been in, uh, in Sin The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. She had been in The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, and... Uh, yeah, our first well, James Bond connection of today. Our first not, James but... Bond connection. There's a lot more to come. Yes. Uh, and and let's let's straight. The problems with this movie are not her. Like Carol Monroe is is fine. Nobody. Let's put this. This movie was very uh, heavily dubbed. You know, it was one of those like a spaghetti western. Everybody was dubbed, and the dubbing does none of the actors any favors whatsoever. Uh, Carol Monroe spends most of the movie in a leather bikini. And, um, you know, I mean, there's there's certainly a Barbarella vibe, uh, you know, to, to her character for sure. Um, and she's she's certainly not unpleasant to look at. What I what I love is that that, um, you know, that Barbarella, almost like that wrestling singlet bikini that she gets yeah. put into appears at the time when she goes to the space prison work camp. That's when she gets dressed in that outfit because it's it's a real work outfit, Chris. If yeah. you're busting moon rocks, you, you're gonna want that. Yeah, yeah, no, that is um, that is absolutely true. I mean, again, that is that is just the tip of the nonsensical iceberg. Um, so her and and this here's the biggest issue I have with this movie. It is a movie of no consequences, and I don't mean it's inconsequential, although that's probably true too. It is it is a movie. Where, for example, she gets she's a smuggler, she gets caught, she gets sent to space prison, and she then engineers a rather complex escape. And as soon as she escapes, she's pardoned. Well, if she's pardoned, why did she even need to escape? And, and the movie is full of these things where a thing happens, and then something else happens to make it not matter. And it, it's, it's bonkers. And in the lead up, the escape itself is also inconsequential because she gets to, I'm just going to say space prison. It's probably yeah, more it's accurate space for me to say space prison than what the actual name is in the movie. So she mentions wanting to escape. Instantly in the same like shot, a guard overhears her and is like, wait, are you trying to escape? And then she just escapes. <laughs> I mean, there is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. it, it is a world where the setup, the payoff, and the struggle is all in the same beat. And that is not always the most effective storytelling, Chris. Rob, it's not just in the same beat. It's in the same line of dialogue. Like, it's in, it's, it's <laughs> like within, it's in the same, like, it's just, everything happens, is it, so fast. It's, uh, and, and, 
and yet there are stretches where nothing happens. It is the weirdest. It is the weirdest thing. Um, so she is she is tasked uh, along with her her partner Acton, which I'll, I'll talk about Acton in a minute. She is tasked along with Acton with with the, finding this crashed ship, which is was carrying the 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 emperor's son, who's trying to investigate uh, the evil count Zarth On. Uh, I keep thinking that's one word, but it's actually two. Uh, and who is building this super weapon the size of a planet. Rob, does that sound familiar? Oh, I think that it might. Whereas I understood with the Death like the Death Star, there's consequences. It blows up Alderaan. It, it, everything you understand. I'm still not clear on what the super weapon did. It seemed to create like a lava lamp effect and people got really upset. And I just, I, I literally don't understand what the super weapon was for other than it was the size of a planet. Yes, and when those, and the lava lamp stuff, this is like the opening of yeah. the, the film when the first ship gets attacked that has the Emperor's son on it and everyone of the crew freaks out and I think most of them wind up dead after this. Um, but then later, when this same weapon in the same lava lamp effect is on our heroes, they just kind of get through it. Yeah, I, I don't understand what the... It's... For no reason, and then it's just illusions in the mind or something? I don't know. I don't know. It's windmills in my mind. I, I, I I'll, Oh, I should mention that the movie does begin with cribbing that opening shot of Star Wars where the, the spaceship comes above and from behind, and uh, we will see that again later today. That is a, That seems to be a common element that was borrowed from Star Wars, was the big... Open. Of course, in this case, it didn't even look like they painted the model. It was. It looked like it was. Oh yeah, we put this together, but we didn't bother to do the painting. Um. All right. So we have Stella Star, and we have her partner Acton. Acton is played by uh, by Marjo Gortner. Um, and I'll just say, I think Acton might be my least favorite character in the history of cinema. I I cannot. I, I cannot stand him. He seems to be an alien, but they never say it. Uh, he seems to be psychic, uh, but they never explain that. None of his abilities are explained. He can apparently see the future, but he can't tell anybody about it. Lest they change it. Well, what good are you, pal? What good are you? <laughs> Just, oh my god. Then they have kind of the Doctor Who thing where, oh, you can't change, uh, you can't change time. But then when Acton wants to change time, it's just completely not even mentioned and he just Ugh. does it. Uh, he just I, changes the future based on what he knows about the future. And just, you know, he's got, he's got this big permed hair. He looks like Luke from, from General Hospital. And, uh, you know, it's like if Obi-Wan Kenobi stepped out of Phantom of the Paradise. That's what this dude looks like. And it is to get to what people took away from star wars clearly a lot of films took away oh we need magic stuff yeah and i and i do think that they said magic stuff in those meetings magic um, stuff this robots. is what they took away from the force yes cute robots cute, cute robots. robots uh here we have a robot cop a robot uh space cop who then ends up teaming up with stella star uh and the, the robot space cop had this this kind of weird texas twang to his his voice and i'm like i don't understand why this is the i think are we are we seeing more smoky in the bandit 
you know, in the in the robot space cup. I don't know. I it's I do think that people were taking from Smokey and Bandit inexplicably. <laughs> I mean, I know I know they were the two biggest movies in nineteen seventy seven, Rob, but it's like it's not chocolate and peanut butter. They don't necessarily go together. Uh, I don't think that they do either, but space cops keep showing up and I have no idea why someone would watch Star Wars and think Oh yeah, space cops should be in this. That's sure. just like Star Wars. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, the the robot he has a, he has a line. I quote: "I have I have only logic and emotion circuits. No time for craziness." That's a line, um, and it just oh god, you know, it, we have we have a lot of stop motion, but it's really bad stop motion. It is like the most bargain basement Ray Harryhausen effects you ever saw. It's the stuff that that you know it'd be like it's the stuff that ray harryhausen did just sort of in his sleep and just said oh this is garbage let me throw this away there's a there's a giant guardian who looks like the 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 uh the creature the the big metal creature from jason and the argonauts and it is the most god it just looks so bad i i mean it's just you know i don't know this movie it's like they actually made the movie that Albert Brooks is editing in Modern Romance. Like, oh, <laughs> let's go make that movie. Um, nobody gets out of their own predicaments. There's like three deus ex machinas in half an hour. Um, and, and eventually you run into, you know, you have, you have Amazon women and cavemen. And, you know, like the, the Stella Star gets captured by the cavemen and then is immediately rescued by David Hasselhoff. And then they're immediately recaptured by the cavemen. And then they're rescued by Acton. And at some point, somebody whips out a lightsaber. And I'm just like, how have you not been sued? Yeah. And isn't there uh, essentially the creature from the Black Lagoon also saves Stella with his laser eyes? Oh, from yeah. From the cavemen that's who right. killed Yes. yes. It, it often feels like... They had some script pages for the day that were kind of like Mad Libs. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like the setting absolutely. wasn't there. Like, oh, the cave set's open today, and they're like, "What's in wardrobe? <laughs> we got, oh, we got this old creature costume. Let's use it. We got some cavemen suits. Let's put people in cavemen outfits. That's fine, uh, you know. And it's, uh, I mean, it's just. And, and listen, both of us have talked about there are some bad movies that we really love that that you know are just entertaining to watch. We we discussed that a little bit last week where, you know, it's like there's there's something in a world where, you know, cinema has become so polished where you have something where that is un, can be unexpected and surprising. Well, I, I suppose this qualifies as unexpected and surprising, but but it's it's not so bad it's good. It's just so bad. Yeah, and that that it's not surprising. It's concepts in this movie are introduced exactly when they're needed for the plot so things that you've never heard of it it would be akin to they escape the death star and then it's the first time we hear about the plans is at the meeting where luke is going to fly with the squadron to blow up the death star like if we'd never known that there were plans in r2 they just go oh it turns out there were plans in r2 let's go do it they do stuff like that in this movie there's no if if imagine in Star Wars that there's no mention of the Force until Obi Wan Kenobi pops voice pops into Luke's head during the trench run and says, "Oh, by the way, there's this thing called the Force, and if you you shut off your targeting computer, uh, you might be able to use the Force to blow up the Death Star." That's that's the way this movie is constructed. Um, 
even with its title uh, thing. Starcraft. Oh, yeah. Starcraft. Is, we... is an actual thing, but you don't learn it until. <laughs> Literally, very, there's very 10 late. minutes left of the movie. And oh, how, how are we gonna beat? How are we gonna beat the count? Oh, we'll use this this method called Star Crash. Well, what? I still don't know what it means. I still don't know what it means, Rob. Uh, I know that everybody in the in this galaxy wears a ton of eyeliner. I know that much. Yeah, uh, they look good. They're looking good with that eyeliner. The Emperor, uh, the good Emperor. This is the good beats, em- Yes, they, it, do, it, they do beat them a little bit to the. Yeah, the, 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 the Emperor here is on is. Is a good emperor, and the uh, and the rebels are evil rebels headed headed by this count. So it, it does, I suppose, reverse the Star Wars paradigm. That it is played by by legendary Christopher Plummer, uh, who apparently took the role because he wanted a vacation to Rome. That's a legit reason to pick yeah. This movie. No, and sure. sure, why not? I mean, I, I, it's um, my favorite emperor moment. Oh, I know when, what it is. I know what it is. <laughs> Let's say it yeah. together: Imperial battleship. Halt the flow, the flow of time. Of time. <laughs> oh my god! So like it's it's like if you know the Death Star is approaching Yavin, and all of a sudden you know Mon Mothma shows up and says, "Hey, I can stop time for a while, so you can blow up the Death Star without the without it getting closer." It's it, it is Imperial battleship halt the flow of time, which oh. it is explained in the line immediately preceding it, where he says. I wouldn't be emperor if I didn't have some tricks up my sleeve. And that uh-huh. pretty much explains the ability to halt time. Uh, that, yeah, that, that, that does it. I, 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 uh, at that oh point, boy. my brain was in a puddle on the floor. <laughs> my, my mind cracked open. Uh, and I was one with the universe, oddly enough. Well, that's, I mean, Hey, you got that going for you. I mean, it's, it's yeah. Deus ex machina. The movie, um, is, is really what this, this film is. And, uh, apparently, director Luigi Cosi swears he was developing this movie before Star Wars came out, and maybe that's true, but the Star Wars influences are clear and abundant. And again, this is a this is maybe the 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 the, the ultimate example of not learning the right lessons. They they learned everything wrong from Star Wars, and we'll see this again and again. Where it's oh, we're gonna take the cute robots and the laser guns and the laser swords and. And but we're gonna miss that Star Wars is is this incredibly simple and you know and kind of heartfelt tale that is that is well told and they miss that but they get all of the trappings and that seems to be the thing it's we're gonna take the trappings and we're gonna miss the core um, it's uh, oh boy Imperial battleship halt the flow halt of time. the flow of time. Oh, and I do uh, want to just give a shout out to um, Joe Spinell and Carolyn Monroe, two reasons I was actually excited to see this movie. I, I like them both. I'm big fans of both of them. Yeah, uh, I think neither one used particularly well in this, but Maniac, they get a chance to star in later with each other. And that That's movie true. is fantastic. That and is really absolutely true. And I bring it up in part to show, I mean, both of them as actors are capable of giving... Uh, performances that are actually very powerful and in this movie it's just not allowed to be there for a million reasons I can name two things I really liked about the movie I can I, okay. there's there is a uh, John Barry does the score 
And it is a very kind of, you can hear the echoes of some of John Barry's James Bond scores in Star Crash. And it is a, it is a very good score. And I got to say that uh, the, the Count has this ship, this spaceship that is shaped like a giant hand. And for some reason, it's so goofy that I really liked it. And at various points, the fingers close in. And it's like, I, I, I liked the giant hand ship. But that is undercut by the fact that Acton is my least favorite character in the history of cinema. You know, he, he just, he says things, I, I can't leave you. You're the only human-like friend I've ever had. And then he disappears. Because of course he does. Spoilers for Star Crash. I don't care. Like, it's just, it's, it's, you know, I, I can't. Oh, God, I can't even recommend this movie. It's so bad. It's good. It's just, it's so bizarre. It, it's, it's real value is in sort of showing how, how to take the wrong, how to learn the wrong lessons from another movie. How to, how to take the, the trappings, but, but not, you know. Not not any of the of the the actual core of 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 what Star Wars is, and it's just oh god, it's it's the strangest thing. Um, now, Star Crash was not the only Star Wars inspired movie to come out of Italy in 1979. In fact, in the late 70s, Star Wars knockoffs became something of a stock in trade for the Italian film industry, with movies like Star Odyssey, Cosmos, War of the Planets, Battle of the Stars and War of the Robots. But perhaps the most notable of all these Italian productions was The Humanoid. I shall create for you an army of humanoids. Indestructible human robots. This is the day of the humanoid, when man faces his greatest challenge from outer space. See them duel with laser guns and lethal arrows of shimmering phlegathon. Discover the secret of Tantan, who disarms a mutant space creature programmed to kill. Cheer Kip, the robo-dog, as he blasts invaders from the blue planet Noxon. Time they come too close. The Humanoid. Written and directed by Aldo Lado under the pseudonym George B. Lewis. Get it? Lucas Lewis. Yeah. Um, the Humanoid stars Richard Keel, Con uh, Corinne Cleary, Leonard Mann, and Barbara Bach. Now, both Bach and Cleary were featured in James Bond movies, The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, respectively, both of which, oddly enough, featured Richard Keel as the character Jaws. Uh, honestly, Rob, if you said to me a week ago, Chris, you're going to watch these three movies, and your favorite is going to be The Humanoid, I would have said that's crazy. And in, But in fact, The Humanoid was my favorite of this week's movies. Mine as well. I mean, you have... Uh... Music by Ennio. Uh, yeah, Ennio Morricone, uh, and and it's this, it's this, it's like it's like Ennio Morricone with a Casio keyboard, and he does the whole thing. 
Yeah, it's almost him by way of Tangerine Dream a little bit. Yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, very interesting, but fun. And also, yeah. I will say, not a John Williams knockoff score in no. the least. No. Very different. That is that is they are not trying to mimic John Williams with the humanoid. Uh, it is it's it's a very different thing, and it's and it's interesting. Um, here's my here, my my quick thumbnail. Uh, the evil Grawl escapes from prison and steals a powerful element called the Capitron, which has the ability to turn human beings into humanoids, mindless super soldiers without free will. Grawl is in league with a mad scientist named Dr. Craspin and the Lady Agatha, whom Craspin is keeping eternally young. Uh, Craspin himself wants revenge against a scientist named Barbara Gibson, who they always refer to as Barbara Gibson. Both first and last name. He gets She gets Jackson maimed. Um, and... Uh, because he she uncovered some of the the, the research that this this evil scientist was doing. Uh, Barbara, by the way, is also the teacher of a boy named Tom Tom, who is displays psychic powers and periodically hangs out with two mysterious beings dressed in white. Uh, they test the the Capitron on a space pilot named Golub, who is then sent to kill the leader of Earth, which is now known as Metropolis for reasons that nobody understands. Uh, and it happens to be Grawl's brother. Uh, after a rampage through the capital, Tom Tom is able to psychically break Grawl's control over Golub, although he remains a humanoid. And together, Golub, Tom Tom, and a Metropolis security officer named Nick go rescue Barbara, who has been captured by Grawl. Ah. <sighs> Uh, this movie does start with, with a opening crawl, a la Star Wars. And not only is it a story crawl, they also give the opening credits in the manner of a, of a crawl up screen, followed by yet another starship coming from overhead and behind. Um, after Star Crash, I did not have a great deal of optimism about the humanoid. Uh, and I was seriously starting to question some of my life choices that brought me to this moment. But surprisingly, I thought the humanoid... Well, I wouldn't say it was good, but it's it, it's kind of bad, but in sort of a regular way. Like, it's it's just a kind of, you know, generally not great movie. But it's not, like, upsetting. No, I overall, I thought this felt more cinematic and competent. Although, yeah. as you were saying, after Star Crash, I was trying to give this movie extra points. I have notes uh, for uh, Makes Sense and yeah actually is a movie yeah yeah it, it it does it does there is a narrative flow that is logical and uh you know actions have consequences uh which is more than you can say for star crash um the design in this feels like they can for the most part with one glaring exception that they are uh, able to copy kind of the design feel of the costumes and the sets a little bit better. Yeah. Um, I think the Italians are taking those design cues a little bit better. Um, yeah. Except for Lord Grawl's face well, mask, let's, which... Yeah, yeah, it's a problem. It's uh, Lord Grawl looks like a combination of Dark Helmet from Spaceballs and the Gimp from Pulp Fiction. He has this plastic face mask that... I don't know if anyone uh, had plastic batting helmets that had like the little <laughs> yeah. uh, headband inside that could pop yes. out. It yes, looks indeed. like the inner plastic headband that would just kind of was, were straps that sat on your head. If someone just kind of 
pulled that down over your face. I guess you could also say it's a plastic jock strap. Yeah, kind I mean, of it's over things where you face. mostly see the skin, but yeah. then it has this inexplicable thing there. And it is inexplicable because the rest of the the designs are pretty decent. And it, I I loved his his like minions were were great. Like yes. and 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 they they looked great. And I loved honestly they have more personality than you know most you know just stormtroopers. You know it's like it, it's you hear these guys they're complaining about their job. They're saying how Grawl kind of sucks as a leader uh, and they, how hot they think Lady Agatha is. And I got to be honest, I was really entertained by the Grawl's soldiers. Uh, they were, they were they, something you usually don't see in, in this type of thing. Yeah. They, they actually gave them a little something to do. They were not yeah. just, uh, you know, props uh, for the set. I, uh, the design of this, one thing that I think all of the, a lot of the films are learning as a lesson from Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, and their mileage varies on this. Very Is wildly. that with Darth Vader... Yes. With Darth Vader, they have established a kind of feudal space structure. So in this one, yes. it's Lord... There's usually emperors of the universe. Yes, that's, yeah. that's common. Uh, Count, uh, Duke, whatever. Um yeah, it's it, it clearly it, it, picked up on the samurai aspect as well, and then they're going back to that even more. Yeah, fairy tales and knights and and lords and kings uh, in in space in space. Um, the uh, the planet Metropolis, formerly known as Earth, why they renamed it Metropolis again, don't know. It seems to be a largely desert region, and they do use what look like uh, cast off land speeders to get around. Um, I gotta say though that there's the exteriors of Metropolis are I thought were genuine like I thought I thought that the sets were genuinely interesting and evocative and the exterior scenes of Metropolis wherever they shot it and I tried to find out where and I couldn't but the exterior scenes are a marvel of a artisanal concrete it's incredible yeah they do look uh, fantastic. This one, in general, I think the real-world locations that they're at, they're choosing... Look, they don't get anything like Tunisia no. uh, that Star Wars had because they didn't have the money. But they are choosing areas that look good yeah, and that kind of makes sense for a futuristic film. Yeah, and, and it's just... Uh, it. There are some... There's some competent filmmaking at work. Uh, I gotta say, you know, a poor Richard Keel. He must have been so excited. Richard Keel played Jaws in in two James Bond movies. He was in uh, the famous "To Serve Man" episode of The Twilight Zone, uh, and he's a, you know he's a big guy, and he he's he often plays characters that are either mute or have limited vocal ability, uh, which is not true of the actor himself. So this poor guy, he must have loved the first 20 pages of the script where he talked like a normal person, but then once he's mind-zapped and turned into a humanoid, well, then that's all over with. He barely he barely says anything else until the very end when he reverts to being a regular human being. And I'm just like, oh, God, I want to see Richard Keel actually just, you know, talk. But when guy. he does get to speak, when he does get to speak... You get some gems. Uh, for oh, instance, yeah. he's traveling alone with his robot dog pal. His robot dog, which, which, let me just talk about the robot dog one second, because it looks like the most expensive item out of the 1982 Sharper Image catalog. 
It's it literally is a robot dog, and and it just it barks, and that's all it really does. Um, again, cute robot. Let's make it a dog. Yeah, and he is talking with the cute robot dog as he's flying through space, and at one point they're gonna do something. It really doesn't matter. Doesn't and matter. he just mentions. Uh, the worst that could happen to us is we could spend 2,000 years in suspended animation. Well, still beats a desk job. So, yeah, you're going you're gonna to be driving around space. You know. Oh, oh God. Um, there's, well, first, let's talk about Tom Tom for a second. Tom uh, Tom is, yes. is, is Barbara's pupil, who immediately is, is suspect. He seems to have some kind of powers or abilities not explained. Uh, and there's one point where Barbara comes home and Tom Tom is out away from the wherever they live and 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 teach, talking to these two dudes in white robes. And uh, I mean, if that's not enough to set up red flags, I don't know what is. But uh, and he says, "Oh, those are my friends. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it." And you know what happens? Barbara just forgets about it. Like she doesn't even. Oh no, wait. Those those two white robed dudes, those two cult looking dudes, should not be talking to a you know a ten year old boy. No, no, no. It's just fine. And they show up at various points in the movie with and and actually help the plot along by shooting people with their and I'm not kidding here. Their laser arrows. Yeah, it's uh, again. I will say a lot of people just straight up stole the lightsaber. They yeah. tried to go that extra mile. Yes. It is essentially a lightsaber bolt that gets shot from an arrow. So they're yeah. uh, they're putting a little unique spin on it, and yet they're also saying Star Wars needs these laser things because they and they do look like lightsaber bolts. They are not um, like the laser blasters from Star Wars. No, no, it's it's like a it's it's like a you know an arrow. It's like a tracer arrow. If that thing if that would even exist, that, that why would would make such a thing? But it's kind of like that. That said, they do rip off the. Um, the space battle with the laser gun turret. Because Nick, who doesn't really have much to do in this movie, which is why I've not mentioned him that much, but Nick, the security guy, fights off some of Grawl's ships with uh, with with a, a bargain basement laser gun turret ripped right off of the Millennium Falcon. Actually, it's more like someone read about the Millennium Falcon fight and then tried to recreate it in their garage. Yeah, and that's just another example of different filmmakers take different things yeah but they will latch on to in this instance oh we need a version of lightsabers oh why don't we have a sequence like when they fought the tie fighters off in the millennium falcon yeah so they take these bits and pieces uh, on the surface level meanwhile um the main plot uh, you know for better and for worse i guess really is very un star wars like um, yeah, there's nothing I, in Star Wars about creating super monster soldiers. This is more yeah. like uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, yeah, know, I guess stuff. there's a certain there's a let a little Urkai, you know. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, again, it it it. If you, had, I I still it was my favorite of the three movies because it did try to at least sort of, you know, I wouldn't say think outside of the box, but at least sort of push the boundaries of what this box. This Star Wars box uh, was was supposed to be so it's, I mean it's got that going for it. I mean it's not, it's not brilliant, but it, it's it's at least just sort of, it, it exists as a movie as we understand the concept, uh, which is more than I can say for Star Crash. Yes, 
they do make some odd choices when you are trying to capitalize on Star Wars' success, which was a very broad-based film. Uh, a lot, a family could potentially see it. Oh yes. Um, in this one, they at one point they're using essentially what I would call a space Iron Maiden, but that's mostly plexiglass. Yes. Yes. They're using this on a naked lady to drain her blood. And yes. this is the blood that will keep Lord Grawl's uh, Lady Agatha young and beautiful. And at this point, I just thought, well, this is uh, perhaps an odd thing to put in a movie that you are trying to <laughs> maybe be a little broader based audience. But, you know. I mean, truthfully, this movie suffers from having too many villains. I mean, it's you have Lord Grawl. You have his main squeeze, Lady Agatha. Uh, and then you have the, the, the villainous doctor, the mad scientist. And I got to be honest, I don't think you need all three. I mean, I think you could have you sort of squeezed them down. And, you know, Grawl is the brother of the, the president of the, of the world. Uh, but he, that doesn't seem to really come into play. Uh, the mad scientist kind of undercuts the other two at various points. Um, you also get, you get the fourth villain, at least for a while, technically, with the humanoid. Oh, yeah. Because... That's true. Because uh, when and my that's one of my favorite moments too. He comes out of the lake as the humanoid and he yells like Leatherface in that Leatherface three trailer <laughs> or something. <laughs> Just, this is the this is the Jaws I know. This is yeah, the Jaws yes. I know. Um, and what's funny is that when he's just space pilot Golub, uh, he's got a beard, and then when he becomes the humanoid, uh, the beard goes away. When he is returned to human state in the last moments of the movie, the beard returns. I don't know. Boy, I don't know. I, I, I just, I mean, I guess I, that make. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. Good God. <laughs> um, can we talk about the end of the film? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I think we need to talk about the end of the film. Because the end of the film is, uh, is, is, is very odd in a way I didn't see coming. Um. We've established... Okay, so we have Tom Tom, who is this psychic kid. And he hangs out with these two mysterious robed laser arrow shooter guys who are, are, are unexplained. And at the end, you know, again, this is spoilers for the humanoid, but, you know, the good guys win and the bad guys lose. What's really odd is that Tom Tom's mysterious friends in white appear in what looks like a crystal boat. Like sailing ship. And they come to take Tom Tom away. And he tells the others that, quote, his work is done and he now has to go home to his home in ancient Tibet. And that's what he does. Yeah, uh, made particularly odd in that the ship, if I'm not mistaken, looks kind of like an origami crane made yes. out of crystals. Yes, which is if you can envision that in your mind, uh, an origami crane made out of crystals, and and they just it's like oh well sure he's got to go back to Tibet of the past in his There's, Japanese boat. Yeah, I, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, you know it's. I mean, j just when you think things are are kind of normal, uh, here comes here comes the origami crane crystal boat to just kind of throw a monkey wrench uh, into the into the thing and and. Uh, and to quote the film itself, which I think sums it up best, kid, you gotta be out of your gravity zone. <laughs> I'm gonna start using that. Hey man, you can't, you know, a man's gotta know his gravity zone. 
you gotta know your gravity zone um i mean again it was the best of the three um we <laughs> you know this week is not is not the highest quality we, these were some of the first films to kind of come in the wake of star wars and as we said they were not necessarily the most expensive not that 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 budget equals quality that's certainly not true but these didn't necessarily have the budget to sort of fully realize uh the vision that they wanted to and we'll have uh, other movies i think that do a better job at that um all three of them today i think suffer from a version of the same thing yeah which is that before Star Wars, uh, science fiction films were considered box office poison because they were old-fashioned, yeah. cheesy, looked bad. And Star Wars broke that wide open and, and yeah. Close Encounters and people mm-hmm. thought, hey, sci-fi done right can be great. These all seemed like films that capitalize on Star Wars by attempting to make the kind of science fiction film Star Wars had just blown off the map. Yeah, there was a in in terms of science fiction films in cinema, you have this gap between in 1968 you have Planet of the Apes and 2001: A Space Odyssey, and then there's a a gap there where the, there were not a lot of profitable science fiction films. Uh, there's some really interesting ones, uh, in particular one set in a dystopian future, and that is something we may explore in a later series. But they're not they're not terribly profitable. And then Star Wars comes along. In in 77, you have the one-two punch of Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and it literally just changed everything. It it, Overnight, you know, it's like now studios are tripping over themselves to spend as much as they can. Um, Our third film today is a Canadian production called H.G. Wells' The Shape of Things to Come. Welcome to a universe of robots with the power to perform wonders and men with the will to destroy worlds of interstellar blackmail and intergalactic heroism. Beyond the Earth, beyond the moon, adventure beyond your wildest imagination. H.G. Wells' The Shape of Things to Come, rated PG. Supposedly based on the H.G. Wells novel of the same name, uh, which was previously adapted by William Cameron Menzies in 1936. But when I tell you there is no connective tissue to the Wells book, you have to believe I'm familiar with the Wells work. I've seen the 1936 film. Uh, It's kind of a a future history story charting the course of civilization from like the 1930s to the early 22nd century. And there is no connection other than taking place in the future, there's no connection between the 1979 movie and uh, and Wells' novel. The only connection, even slightly, comes from a character named Cabell, which is not even derived from Wells' book, but from the 1936 adaptation. And it's yet at the same time there is the possessory credit of of H.G. Wells, The Shape of Things to Come. Um, it tells the story of in a distant future, mankind will have emigrated from a ruined Earth to the domed cities on the moon. And humans are dependent on an anti-radiation drug called Radic Q2, which is mined on a distant planet, Delta-3. When the evil Ormus takes over Delta-3 and demands the surrender of the moon, scientist John Cabell, his son Jason, robotics expert Kim, and a robot named Sparks set off in a starship called the Starstreak for Delta-3 in order to stop it. It stars Barry Morse, who played Lieutenant Gerard in the original TV series The Fugitive and is one of the stars of Space 1999, the mid-70s series. Uh, Nicholas Campbell, Anne-Marie Martin, and Jack Palance as Ormus. 
Uh, it also has two characters, but with the last name of Smedley, and I simply can't abide that. Um, Rob, I don't know about you, but I uh, I had a tough time with The Shape of Things to Come. Yeah, the, the structure seemed very episodic. Yes. Uh, that string of pearls where things didn't really seem to be... Um, springing from each other there's a by the time you get our, our three leads in what the star streak and they're yes. headed toward delta three at that point it's almost like and obviously not not necessarily um quality or, or <laughs> not necessarily quality wise it is much like the odyssey where the star streaks on the way to the film's climax yes. and stuff happens along the way that impedes them that yes. kind of has nothing to do with the overall story. All of that is correct. Also add the fact that the stuff that happens is so ungodly dull that I I just, I don't often say, Rob, this movie is boring. It is just boring. Uh, it was it was tough. Um, yeah, and um, it, you, oh if you God. look at it, if you made a list of the things that happened in this movie... On paper, that list would look pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those vagaries of, um, you know, actually producing the thing where sometimes stuff just doesn't turn out like you planned. Well, for example, they stop at Earth on the way to Delta Three, and they encounter a bunch of, of mutant children. Basically, they encounter the kids from Village of the Damned who are still living on Earth. And they, uh, they leave those kids... And they continue on their journey. And I still, to this moment, I don't know why they stopped there. I don't know why that happened. Like, it seemed to serve no function in the story other than, hey, our movie has to be at least an hour and a half. And it's funny because I think I made the note, although I could be wrong. It, because in movies like this, it is often hard to keep things straight in your head because of the way it's presented. It's just not not so unified. But I believe something had happened with the star streak. And somebody yeah. said a single line of dialogue, we have to repair it on Earth. And then they do the, uh, what, the saucer separation. Yeah, which takes they, forever. It, it Yes. And, uh, and then they go down to Earth and then they meet those kids. But as far as I know, they never actually do the repairing unless that's probably also taken care of in a line of dialogue. You know. I think, yeah, there's a line of dialogue, I think, that indicates that Barry Morse is, is as, as Dr. Cabell, that he is repairing the ship. And while, um, while the, 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 the son and the girl and the robot go visit his friend who, is, they turns out, has died, so it didn't really matter anyway. Yeah, and I think there's a line of dialogue that, um, that explains it, but Lord knows, it just, it kind of, oh God, I mean, this movie's so slow. God, even their hyperdrive is glacial. Like, if I have to watch another scene uh, of robots ambling through a cave, I was going to fall into a coma. That They are another example of this movie feels like it's, while it's trying to capitalize on Star Wars' success, it's also really beholden to a lot of old-fashioned, at this point, sci-fi. They yeah. feel more like Robbie the Robot or, or dare I say, Robot Monster than they yeah. do a post-droid robot for a film. Agreed. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, they do, the robots, and, and, and Jack Palance plays the robot master 
So he's got all these robots working for him. And they kind of just amble along. And they, they do feel in more in the Robbie the Robot or the Robot from Lost in Space. Um, and it, it, it's, it's more like that. Um, there was a scene where a bunch of people poke robots with sticks. And I started for a second to get nostalgic for Star Crash's knockoff lightsabers. Um, like it was like, oh, you know, I guess at least that's better than sticks. Uh, we do need to talk about Sparks the robot, who is super horny for Kim. Yes, I, you know, Chris, this is very interesting. How many movies we come across that are ostensibly made again for the whole family with right. some some real horniness uh, in yeah. them? And look, hey, it's an it's a part of life, man. I get it. We're we're not prudes here at Get Me Another. It's it's you know we're not prudes here, but you know there is something uh, you know. Family entertainment is different from entertainment for you know for uh, the 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 single adult male or uh, a, a couple. You know, it's a different it's a different thing. Uh, so yeah, it's just it's the weird mixing of this stuff. It's almost doing that kind of. It doesn't go as far as Howard the Duck, but doing that no. kind of trying to do that kind of comedy with the robot, mm-hmm. but in a very like. The tone and feel is like Forbidden Planet or something. It's, it's just doesn't super weird. quite yeah. mesh. Yeah. Yeah, it's um nothing is is as horny as Howard the Duck as we've established in previous episodes. And and this this is also true of 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 the shape of things to come, but it is it is as far as horny robots go. Um you know, he's he's at the top of the list. Um I will say I, I did think this movie the the one thing I really did like there was scenes on the moon in the because the human humanity is living on the moon and some really nice lunar landscape shots that uh, I thought were really good. Um, also, there's there's an interesting where Barry Morrissey he's gonna he's gonna take the the star streak out and he has to do like the fueling of the ship, and I didn't. Um, like I didn't quite understand why, but no, he again it was probably explained in a toss-off line of dialogue. But the fueling of the ship sequence, uh, which ends up giving him radiation poisoning, is very reminiscent of the the scene with Spock in the reactor core in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, which was uh, you know I think about three three years later, uh, and it's very kind of like that, except without any of the drama. <laughs> yes, um... I mean imagine if 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 Spock got poisoned at the beginning of the movie and then didn't tell anybody, but just seemed really kind of out of it. Like, I could just see, it's like, oh, you know, uh, hey, is something wrong? No, I'm fine. I'm just going to take a nap. Oh, okay. Well, that there you go. Another odd choice that I found, and this is just a pure visual thing. Uh, Star Wars as a film is very, very crisp. Yes. Looking. The, yes. And look, there you can talk about the the dirtiness and lived inness of the world is one thing, but the image itself is very crisp. This film is super soft. It it at times it feels like they're using some sort of glamour filter, or maybe yeah. it's just the softer. Uh, I know sometimes film stocks can have uh, you know could have had a an effect on that, but it just it's a very very soft movie, which makes it feel very seventies in general that way. But very yeah. inappropriate for this kind of science fiction. Yeah, it's like they smeared Vaseline on the camera as if it was, you know, like the Warren Beatty uh, version of Love Affair. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's so kind of soft focus. Um, I mean, this movie's so subdued that even Jack Palance is subdued in this movie. Like, it's, it, you know, you're, if you're expecting, 
boss Carl Grissom or even the host of Ripley's Believe It or Not, uh, that's not what you're going to get. It is it is Jack Palance until the very end. He is just kind of like, oh, you know, things are chill. So the whole movie, Barry Morris's character is dying of this radiation poisoning. And then he never really gets, it doesn't really come of anything because at the, towards the end of the movie, about, you know, uh, three quarters of the way through, Jack Palance kills him with disco lighting. He turns on this disco lighting machine. Jack Palance puts a glass dome on his head, and uh, he kills Barry Morse with uh, with disco lighting. Um, yeah, I mean that happens. At the beginning, uh, Jack Palance's character sends an empty cargo ship to crash into the moon colony. Yes, there are things that sound like there's action going on. Yeah, but everything it's it's shot so kind of like a stage play most of the time yeah or like it's or like it's a live episode of doctor who where it's very proscenium arch a lot of the time you're not getting much in the way of of cuts or setups on scenes and so it just i i feel it feels like so many of the scenes are in real time which i think gives it kind of that sluggish quality which is again the opposite of star wars is editing um not that everything was zip 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 in star wars but you know it's always cinematic and you had even minor motion and shots to help you kind of go along right and and this this has more shoe leather than you know an episode of kojak like it's just oh we're gonna show everybody walking we're gonna show them walking to the place oh and then they're walking some more oh hey they're ambling through a cave and you know it's like you you know you can just cut to where they're gonna be it's it's uh now I also want to talk about the end of this movie. So I, I, cause there's something that happens that I don't think was the intended message of the filmmakers, but was my takeaway. So at the end, they, they do defeat, uh, Jack Palance's character, uh, and they set in motion a chain of events where he's got this, he's got this tower on the planet, which is his headquarters, uh, where the, the tower is going to blow up. And in fact, is going to take the entire planet of Delta Three with it. So they have all of the they have the the the, the radiation drug that is essential for humanity's survival, Radic Q two, which is a terrible name. Um, they're, they have a a a, a spaceship full of Radic Q two in tow, and Jason Kim and Sparks escape with a supply ship, and Delta Three explodes. Now. Tell me if I'm reading this wrong, but is humanity doomed? Because now you have this radiation drug that they need, that humanity needs for survival. The only planet where it's found is now gone. And while they have a big supply, eventually that supply is going to run out. I mean, maybe it takes 50 years, but eventually it's going to run out and then everybody dies. Yeah, this is also indicative of some of the issues with this movie. Because this was a line of dialogue earlier where they mention, as you said, um, you're going to blow up the planet and we won't be able to get any more of the drug. And it's just a single line that says, my cargo ships are full. Again, though, as you point out, that is not a permanent solution. And it's treated as if it is a permanent solution. Yes! And, I mean, this is just like one of the the sneaking around sequences when uh, she hides around the corner and then, uh, you know, Omis, you know, Jack Palance's character walks by with a robot and yeah. they walk by as if 
human peripheral vision is not in existence. Not a thing. Not a um, thing. It is like not on it is Delta like, Three. Yeah, it's like when my daughter was younger and would play hide and seek, and was oh you can't see me here. I'm like oh where are you? <laughs> I couldn't possibly see, and it's it's that kind of uh, thing that taps into some of the suspension of disbelief problems. It's like, you know, a lot of classic, both Rob and I are fans of the classic Doctor Who, you know, and, and, but there's a lot of conventions of that where it's like, oh, if you hide around a corner, nobody will find you. No matter what, nobody's going to find you. And, and this feels like it's, it's, uh, it's in that vein. I mean, but I'm, I'm really troubled by the end of this movie because I feel like, is this the story of humanity, how humanity finally died out? Uh, and was it boredom that 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 did us in? I mean, it's just a boredom and a lack of radic Q two. Uh, it's just. I like to think there's a delta four out there for us, Chris. Oh well, I mean, they, you should indicate that that they're gonna go look for delta four, and now they have, you know, I mean, uh, oh Rob, um, the problem with all of three of these movies to one degree or another. And and again, you know, all of them is that they copy the tropes of Star Wars. The spaceships, the laser guns, the laser swords, and and sometimes to just an absurd degree. But what they don't, all of them don't get to the thing that made Star Wars really work. And that's telling a simple, universal story with excitement and heart. Like, all three of these movies feel like they are shadows on the wall of the cave in Plato's allegory, and Star Wars is the thing that's casting the shadows. Uh, they have the form, but they don't have the substance. It was a rough week here at Get Me Another Studios with these three pictures. Absolutely. But <laughs> I would like to say, going forward, there is hope. Oh, there Perhaps. are hope. There's, 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 yeah. there's a new hope ahead. Um uh, we have some very exciting movies uh, in the in the weeks to come, including next week, where we are going to discuss uh, two works that heavily influenced the creation of Star Wars and following its success were given new adaptations. Yes, folks, I am talking about Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Ah, he saved every one of us. Make sure you tune in next week, even if you're flying blind on a rocket cycle. Again, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. And if you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And we hope to see you next week when we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another.